Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, live from North Minneapolis. Uh, this is the Bright Lights. I'm your host, Lacey Johnson. And this is basically our weekly chat with achievers that we consider bright lights and who are willing to share uh, their experiences, their commitments, and what they did to get where they are. And to also, I guess, make you bright lights. And that's our goal here. And we focus on family, business, and ideas. And along those lines, we have a great guest tonight uh, who spans all three of those topics and whom, uh, in full disclosure, I got a chance to meet. In fact, I met him for breakfast once uh, about a year ago. And we just, I was just uh, impressed by uh, his background and challenges and his uh, hard work and all the things that he's, he's achieved. And the interesting thing about it, uh, he's had some city experience that kind of parallels some of my country experience. And I just really identified he had corporate experience, some of the industries and things he had worked in. And, uh, and I'm not even, I, I'll let him talk about his family. I mean, just a wonderful family man. And I was just impressed by uh, what he has done. So without further ado, uh, I'm going to bring in tonight's bright light, uh, Mr. Kendall Qualls. Uh, good evening, Kendall. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Doing great, Lacey. Thank you so much for having me on board. And um, hopefully um, these lights here that's shining on me is not going to be too bright here for you and your guests. Well, well, I had to wipe my forehead. Somebody told me it was shining the last couple of podcasts. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, like I said, I know a little bit about you, but I'm not going to uh, get ahead of myself. I'm going to have you tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, uh, first of all, let's start with this, Kendall. Where are you from, where you were raised, and tell us a little bit about your family you were raised in. Yeah, so, um, you know, some tall order. So, you know, my wife and I, our family, we live in Medina. We've made Minnesota our adopted home state. Both my wife and I grew up in military families. So our fathers had careers in the Army, and they both retired about a block away from each other um, in Oklahoma. There's a large Army base down there, and my wife and I, we got a chance to uh, meet each other first in high school. And that's where we met, and that's the town we got married in. Oh, that's a great story, especially those high school sweetheart things. Do you remember the first time you saw her and, and how you reacted? Yeah, I did. You know what? You know, Sheila was was gorgeous uh, in, in high school. She's actually more gorgeous now than she is, was back then. And uh, if you can imagine. But I can tell you, we, we met. Um, I had a friend that uh, really liked her and he wanted to take her to the prom. But he was too shy. He was too shy. So he asked me to, you know, would you ask Sheila out to the prom on my behalf? And like a good friend, I did. I, I asked, hey, look, Cedric wants to take you to the high school prom, the senior prom. And uh, she said, well, no, I don't think so. So, but I was, he was a good friend. So I asked twice. I said, come on. He drives the Ford Mustang GT. Come on. He's a good Ooh. guy. Uh -huh. She said, no, I don't think so. I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm going to do that. So, um, I felt like I fulfilled my fiduciary responsibility <laughs> to uh -huh. my friend. I said, uh -huh. well, uh, since you're free that night, how about going out to the prom with me? And uh, like Paul Harvey used to say, now you know the rest of the story. 
right. Okay, I love that story. I love that story. And then how many sisters and brothers and, and things like that, uh, Kendall, did you? Yeah. Where, so where do you fall in the family? You, my, my, uh, my dad spent 25 years in the Army. Um, when he came back from Vietnam, my parents divorced. And so when we, we lived in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, there was five, four other siblings in our family. And so my mom took me and um, our, our the kids to Harlem, New York in the late 1960s, because that's where my grandparents lived, my maternal grandparents. Mm -hmm. And so we moved from an army base, structured, clean, you know, very, very methodical in its, in its ways to literally the worst inner city um, there was in the United States, the epicenter for drugs, gangs, violence. I was in second grade. And that was my exposure as a kid, you know, my early elementary school years. So, yeah. And speaking of Harlem, I know, I think the first time I went there, I know it was right before it was cleaned up, quote unquote. And now when I go there, at least I haven't been there since the pandemic and how they messed the city up a little bit. But uh, every time I visit Harlem, I just was impressed by the energy and the power and everything i saw the commerce and things like that and so when you got there that was pre-cleanup uh yeah. did, do you ever get a well, chance to go back <laughs> well yeah i did in fact we, we got that's pre-giuliani pre-giuliani that's that's, that's you're right. exactly right uh -huh, was, uh -huh. it, was, it was giuliani and his police forcing that uh, cleaned up the city and made it a livable city um for when decades it, it was one of the most horrific cities in the country. Now, um, I, I, I moved, I moved. So I spent probably four years there in Harlem, uh, in the elementary school. My father came and got me and my younger brother to live with him in Oklahoma. Cause my mom couldn't handle all five of us raising kids. Cause my older brothers and sisters were getting absorbed in the street culture of Harlem. And so my father came and got me and, and because he was paying alimony and child support, he was still a drill sergeant. All he could afford was a trailer. In a small trailer park. So I tell people I've been called ghetto kid, trailer trash, and a lot worse in this country. But here's the thing about America. You know, where you start in life is not where you have to stay in life. And I was I was really, um, really committed to make sure that I never lived like that again. And that's what my, my focus was on education, doing something to advance myself, to separate myself from that world of poverty that I grew up in. That's a good point. I told someone on a previous broadcast, and I was very seriously uh, saying it. Uh, I have never in my life uh, not felt like I can be anything I want to be. And uh, that's one of the messages we want people to get out of this program. In fact, uh, I want to get to the point where I challenge any, anyone who think they cannot be anything they want to be to let me know about it. And I want to help you be whatever you want to be. And so that, I, I agree with where you're going with that. And I, I really appreciate that. And we all need to get this message out. Because here's the thing, Kendall. Our kid, children are hearing so many negative messages and, and how the, everything is stacked against them and how unfair it is. And if you're like me, uh, basically my parents never talked to me about that. They had me focus on education, hard work, uh, going to church, things like that. In fact, what I tell people, I could figure out the obstacles and issues in the world by myself. What I needed my parents to do is tell me what I needed to do to deal with it. So I really appreciate that perspective on your part. Now, I do know that you got uh, your current family besides your wife. 
Sheila, which I met too, and she's as beautiful as she say as he say she is, and my just like my wife. Uh, but tell me about your children. I've been uh, hearing some great things about them also, and I guess it, that phrase that the apple does not fall too far from the tree. Uh, yeah. You're a living proof of that. So tell us about yeah, your yeah, You know what? what um, we're very fortunate, very blessed. We had five kids. So Sheila and I, we got married very young. Um, I was 22. She was 21. And um, But we waited. You know, we, you know we, we both went back to school, both got, you know, graduate degrees. And uh, um, I got a few um, along the way. But then, then we waited seven years. And then we had kids. And uh, we had five kids right in the road. Every two years, bam, 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 bam. And, and actually we had a, a gap between our fourth and fifth. Uh, he's you know four years uh, younger uh, than my uh, my my number four, but what what we decided to do, even though Sheila was in the workforce, she decided you know we want to commit and invest our, our ourselves into our kids into their future. So she decided to stay home, although she was a working woman, and she and we didn't know this at the time. We we actually homeschooled them. My corporate career had us moving quite a bit from a corporate relocations, and so we wanted them to have consistent um consistency in their education so she homeschooled them we had no idea that they were going to dodge this whole indoctrination bullet that's gotcha. going on in the school system yeah. yep. so they got a great classical education good critical thinking skills and uh, so we have our oldest one ashley she graduated from colorado christian university our second oldest josh he graduated from uh, saint olaf we have a third one, uh, J uh, Jonathan. He graduated from New Mexico Military Institute, and he's uh, he's on active duty right now. He's stationed in, in uh, Fort Riley, Kansas. So Jonathan, who's is on active duty in the Army, he's the fourth generation in our family who served in the military. Right. Um, and then our fourth one, she's uh, finishing up her gen eds, and she's looking to go to Northwestern uh, here uh, in St. Paul. And then we have a high schooler as well. You mentioned earlier how you were able to put up with the taunts and everything. And where I'm going with this, Kendall, is what is a, about your childhood or your background that allowed you to put up with the taunts? Not only that, to overcome all the obstacles, quote unquote, uh, that was supposedly in front of you. Tell me what. Yeah. In yeah. Background. So so here's the thing we have. To, we, we have to fight back against. So I, you know, like I share, we, we do have racist people in this country. But the country is not racist. It's really where you focus your mind. So I tell people, if you if you want to find racism in this country, you'll find it. But if you look for opportunity, you'll find it 50 times over, literally. And what we have to be careful more than anything is be careful of listening to the negaholics, as I call them. Instead of alcoholics, the negaholics. Everything is negative. You can't do this. You can't do that. Be careful of white people. You can't trust them. Be careful of all these other things. So, I, you know, I blocked all that out. I blocked all that out. Um, I knew what I wanted. I knew I wanted a better life. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't have a father, you know, or anyone that was in corporate America. I didn't have anything. And so, like I said, I knew it started with an education. And so I worked full time. I paid through college, a small state school. I knew that if, in order to be competitive in, in, the, in the marketplace, an advanced degree was needed, so I got two. And then later on, I got a third one. But because, you know, what leaders, and this is why I love learning, leaders are lifelong learners. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not just for academic sake, so you can talk about your pedigree. It is how can you apply this knowledge 
to make you yourself, your company more effective. You can make, um, are, are you growing the business? Are you, in, are you innovating to, to, um, to make your company more effective, to grow business or save money? Right, Same thing right. personally. You uh, piqued my interest with the homeschooling. Yeah. And am I correct that Sheila did the schooling? Yeah, yeah, she she did. Look, I had a job too. No, no, I'm kidding. I was uh, I was the headmaster. I kept oh, okay. everything in line, but she did 99% of it. Yes. Oh wow! And uh, would you recommend that to people who can do it versus, like you say, sending them off to the indoctrination factory? Well, I, I, I do now. Now, here's you know, a lot of people have a, a misperception of homeschooling. Like they, the kids spend most of their time at home. It's it, probably the most wrong definition. So two to three days a week in every community that we lived in, there are anywhere from two to 300 kids that get together two to three days a week to get their STEMs, right? The math, the sciences, uh -huh, uh -huh. And, e and even uh, performing arts. So um, they met with other 200 kids. These kids were their fit. When, when Josh got married, my son, my middle, my uh, second son, when he got married, the, the men that was in, in, in his wedding party were five different guys. And they were from um, homeschool high school, you know, high school buddies um, that he in four or five different states, because every community had these little co-ops. So you oftentimes either doctors or, or nurses would teach mm -hmm. the, the the biology or the sciences. We had attorneys teaching civics in New Jersey where we lived. We had an, an, an Harvard attorney that taught civics, critical thinking skills. Um, it, it is far more than what they what, what people imagine and. The, the performing arts the, um, that they got a chance to do, the plays and other musicals, they wouldn't be able to do in a school that had a thousand kids or, you know, but uh, man, they, they have some great performances at the, some of these institutions. Right. And would it be safe for me to assume in most of these states that you did the homeschooling in, that you were able to take advantage of, they were able to transfer the normal per people cost to the family? And help defray some of the cost of the homeschooling. Is that true across? The no. Um, in, in one particular state, yes. But but you know what? At the end of the day, you still got to pay your property taxes. Right. And then, I guess that's and, and then it's, it's it's literally like private schooling. You know, the, the cost right. of private school, but not as much. Okay. And give me just one piece of advice. Would you give to someone in our audience who's thinking about homeschooling their child or children? Well, you know what? I want to encourage you. I mean, a lot of times we often hear, I, I, couldn't, I can't imagine doing that, that type of thing. And look, I want, you want, want to encourage you because, you know, at the end of the day, at this point in our, in our country's history, we're going to have to do things much differently as Americans. Because I tell people, you know, we're, we're living off of the blessings and the, and the freedom effort of our, parent, our grandparents and great-grandparents. The pilot light is going out. And it's going to be up to us, this generation, to relight that pilot light of freedom and blessings for, for this generation and, and future generations. Because um, what we're seeing right now, especially with critical race theory, they want to stamp out that freedom. They want to, they want to indoctrinate your kids. They're literally using your property tax dollars to pay the salaries of these, of these teachers and administrators to reinforce values that are con contrary to your own. And against our own country, it is the it is the weirdest, sickest thing ever. So I I want to encourage. I know it's not for every. I know homeschool is not for everyone, 
But for those that are thinking about it, trust me, it, it was well worth the effort and investment of time and money that we took. Because our, our, our kids have a different perspective of true value understanding of our, of our country and the value that it is, um, not only to us, all of us, but around the world. Okay. And I do know, and we'll get into that shortly here. I do know that you have a special interest in education and I'm not going to ask you on the phone now, but we're going to have a second uh, follow-up interview where we're just going to talk about education. Cause I know a little bit about it too. Okay. And, uh, it, it, it just, I tell people it's not just an education achievement gap. It's the start of the life achievement gap, and we need to do something about it. So let's talk about that. I'm very interested. Now, one more thing along the family line. Uh, we talked about your children, and we know uh, Father's Day is coming up. Uh, let's talk about, and we talked about two-parent homes and things like that. Why don't you uh, tell me about what you think about the importance of fathers in the lives of their children, and hopefully in the same home as the mother of their children give me a little take on uh, your take on that particular yeah. item yeah I, I i can't tell you how not, not important this is i think everyone intuitively we, we just know it's important but it, it is really you know the the most cynical thing I, I believe about critical race theory is that they use they use the racial disparities to justify their their whole you know movement and what's really, you know, again, cynical about this, Lacey, is that the, the disparities are not racial. They look racial, but they're not. Yeah, they're they're family that. structure disparities. And the only reason why it looks like racial disparities is because the black community is 50 years ahead of where every other culture is and, and unwed birth. So, so here's the critical piece that we have to let people know about. For the first time in American history, we have 50% of all births in the United States, 50% of them are to unwed moms under the age of 30. So it all started in the black community in the 60s. At that time, we were 80% two-parent families, approximately 80% two-parent families, but something changed, something changed cultural behaviors. And it was the introduction of a program in the LBJ administration and we went from 80% two-parent families to 80% fatherless homes in my lifetime. What made that change? For the first time in American history, we incentivized women to have children but remain unmarried. Right. That was a federal program that was never introduced before until 1964, early 60s, and it was promoted in the black community heavily and it literally changed the dynamic of the black family. The black family used to be faith, family, and education oriented. It was a God-centered culture. And it changed starting in the 60s when we, when we incentivized women and children as long as they remain unmarried. And you know, today, literally today, I have the data here for the state of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. In North Minneapolis and some parts of these communities, nearly 90% of these kids will grow up without a father in their home ever in their home yeah you mentioned something there that we got into earlier and uh, we talked about a clinical famous clinical psychologist jordan peterson one of the things that i like about what he says is that sometimes you just can't look at one factor 
you got to look across the board. There's a lot of determinants. And a lot of times on a lot of these issues, he mentioned 1920 determinants that you have to look at. And what I have been saying to people lately, we do have to look at all the different factors that's going on here, not just stop with that one issue of race. And then uh, I, I've been talking to a lot of uh, black men lately about the breakdown of the family. And one of the things I'm saying to them, and you have to be careful of using yourself to extrapolate uh, to other people, is that, and I'm just being honest, I cannot imagine a government program or anybody doing anything that would make me not stay with my wife and raise my children. And that was just me personally, but based on my experience just growing up. And I think that's the way we have to make that commitment. And I just grew up with a commitment that uh, I was going to stay with the mothers of my children. I was going to marry her. I'm going to raise my children. I don't want no one else raising my children. I'm not going to depend on no one else to support my family. Because once again, that's the way we were raised. And so I think we, we got to challenge here, Kendall. And you and I probably in this generation, we got to start the process of reverse engineering, I guess, some of these bad issues. So I really appreciate the effort you're doing there. Uh, what do you see as, what was as the most challenge for you, the most challenging thing for you as a father? Uh, 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 maybe I should say the less uh, fun thing, hey, either way you want to put it. What's what, what, what do you see as a challenge of fatherhood? Well, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed my, my, my time in, in fatherhood. Now the kids may not believe they, you know, they, they may not have had fun in <laughs> the teenage years, but I had a lot of fun. <laughs> but, but yeah, it, it's funny. You know what? I, I, I have a, a better relationship with my adult sons than I have with my teenage sons. It was great when they're little. They like the fun and joke around and wrestle with dad. But, you know, when it came time to come to early, early manhood or teenage years, I told them, look, what I'm doing for you, I'm doing for the 25 year old you, not the 15 year old you. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, you appreciate it later. But it, it, it was really my job was to prepare them to be young men, not to be their buddies. Right. right. I'm not your I'm not your friend. I'm not your buddy. Uh, and and I, you'll I, appreciate I, it later. I love that. Uh, tell me as a father and I kind of know the answers you're going to give. As a father, what are the things that you are most proud of? Uh, well, no, let's let's broaden that a little bit. As a father and a husband, what are the few things that you're most proud of well there's a couple of things and, and you know what i um i'm so fortunate that i came to the faith so i came to the christian faith when i was 27 years old and i and i give that as the catalyst the main reason why uh, i've been married for 35 years my wife and i celebrated 30 35 years last weekend and um and that our kids have the faith in their life is neat to see they're we're in three different states they they text they communicate with each other um they call or they call or they communicate with their mom nearly every day and um and to have them rooted in the in in the christian faith because regardless i mean we are all human we're going to make mistakes you're going to have disappointments in life but if as long as you're grounded in a faith you, you, there's a sense of hope. There's a sense of simple place to go that grounds you. And without it, I, you know, I never wanted them to be rooted in the culture because the culture drifts, and, you know, back and forth in different norms. It's whatever Time magazine or CNN says is norm. 
that that's not a way to live. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, you mentioned earlier about you being prepared for the world. And when I left high school, I tell people I felt like I was prepared for anything the world had to offer. And when I look back on it, it has to do with me being brought up in church and my faith. And I know it's uh, a lot of people try to make fun of that nowadays and they don't respect it, but it was the most, it's the foundation of just about everything I've done. And, and look, this is not to imply that I've been an angel and, and a good guy and I haven't made mistakes in life, but I tell everybody what happens is that it helps. It gives you a lighthouse yes. on the sea of life where right. you can always find your new direction. So I really appreciate it. In fact, that's a verse in the Bible that says, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. And right. that's what prepared me for everything that was out there. Uh, so tell me also, uh, let's get into your business career a little bit, uh, Kendall. Uh, uh, you mentioned your degrees. Mm -hmm. Tell me what your degrees were, were in. And, you know, yeah, what, what, were you, what did you get your degrees in? I got liberal arts background, you know, um, political science was my undergrad. I got a, a master of arts in communication, so liberal arts. I got an MBA from the university. I called the U of M, the other U of M in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, so ah. it, it was, I was very fortunate to be able to go to a top 10 business school. It was pretty rigorous. But for me, I, I got a chance to not only get the academic training, but also the training from great companies. I've been very fortunate, you know, to work in, uh, you know, from the from the ground up, from the from, from very ground up, working in sales and marketing, um, all the way up to leading um, billion dollar business business units, um, uh, working with uh, other commercial teams, marketing sales teams, and the collaboration of guys that and guys and gals that where we um, we brought innovation, new innovative new technology be it a pharmaceutical technology or a, a med device technology to the marketplace and actually see that product have um, the adoption rate because it created value in the lives of human beings. It just in increased the quality of life for people. And that's, that's, that's capitalism at its best. It, it increases the quality of life for people. They get an exchange and for the exchange of that, the company gets revenue, people get uh, bonuses, they get and they get real equity, not this fake equity that they're selling in social media, right, or not right. social media. They're selling in social justice warriors, right? Real equity is tangible assets that you can pass down to your 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 family members. There's actually pieces of company stock options that you can actually use. That's real equity, and uh, so I got a chance to experience that and uh, in, a, in a very positive way. It allowed me to help raise my family and care for them and prepare them for a good future. And you mentioned something else that caught my attention, uh, MBA from the University of Michigan. And I have to let you know an inside secret. They have my favorite college fight song ever, <laughs> Hail to the Victor. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, like, out of curiosity, have you ever sit in the 106,000 seat stadium and listen to Hail to the Victory? Victor? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that, that is a phenomenal place. Um, you know, very fortunate to have gone there. It's it's amazing. Like I think uh, um, I think every president since um, LBJ got a chance to speak there. It's where the Peace Corps was launched. Um, so it's, it's it's great. You know, iconic place in our country. And it just again for a kid coming from Harlem, from a trailer park, 
to be able to go to a school like that, um, to be a, a vice president at a company like Covidian Medtronic, and then I'm a director, a group director of Johnson and Johnson. I, I just it's it just tells you about the opportunities we have in this country. But I always share with people, you know what? I never would have got there if there were people, Americans, that didn't help me along the way, first, right. both professionally and personally. They were white and black, rich and poor, male and female. Americans help each other and they don't put a filter on it, on skin color or anything else. Every time you see some bad person that does something that's mean and evil, whether regardless of their skin color, they are not the, they are not the standard for America. They're the exception. Yeah. And the media and the political pundits like to use them as this is the example of America. And they're so far wrong. And it's why I'm getting involved in what I'm doing. Uh, I heard Jim Brown in some while that was talking to him about the great football legend. I think the greatest football player ever, by the way, uh, talking about the people that mentored him and how they span all races and colors and things like that. And therefore, he wasn't going to go there either on this racial thing. And, you know, just as another aside, uh, when I look back on my career, uh, two of my biggest uh, supporters and mentors were some guys that they would probably consider rednecks, but they just took me under their wings and whatever I said I wanted to do, they wouldn't fought for me to do it. So I understand exactly where you're coming from. So that's good stuff. You you mentioned the pharmaceutical and medical technology uh, business. Uh, how did you end up in pharmaceutical? Did you pick up any technology, anything about uh, pharmaceuticals and, and medical technologies along the way? And what type of things did, did you do uh, uh, for those companies? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I, I chose J&J. So a lot of big companies like to recruit uh, former military officers. So I was a, a captain out of the U.S. Army. I, was, I led um, field artillery units. I, was, I served in the DMZ. So a lot of companies like to, like to recruit Army officers. And so it, it wasn't like I, I was actually selecting which company I wanted to go to. So I had interviews with General Mills, Pfizer, a lot of big companies, Procter & Gamble. But one of the things that I liked about J&J they didn't have products displayed on their tables for all of us. They had their cradle value. It was written by the son of the founder of the company. And it's like a four or five paragraph cradle value. But the first paragraph is really around, you know, we're here for, um, for, the, for the doctors, the nurses, the mother and fathers of the, of the people that use our products. And then there's goes through the, you know, the another two or three paragraphs, but the bottom paragraph is if we do all this well, Mm -hmm. We will provide a, a, a good return to investment to our investors, good salaries for our employees. But basically, is if we do all this well, we'll see the financial attributes. And it was so consistent with my values. I joined the company and um, it was in the pharmaceutical sector. I didn't have a background in the sciences. However, their training departments and the, the professionals that um, from PharmDs, uh, pharmacists with a with with doctorate degree, microbiologists, of physicians that I worked with personally, um, that great, some of the great training programs and and and, and facilitating uh, features of what they do for their employees. I said, man, these guys need to be in public schools. And I really enjoy, you know, the, the biology and microbiology and the sciences. So I worked for ten years in infectious diseases. So I can tell you anything. I can still have a dialogue with with physicians today, even though I've been out of it for twenty years and in infectious diseases. So these are antibiotics. We actually grew the grew a product uh, that we licensed this product for North America and Europe. 
from Japan. And uh, it's in the quinolone class of antibiotics. That's what it's called. But it was the very one of the very first ones where a pill was bioequivalent. So when you swallow this pill, 99% of this pill became active and available, just like an IV bag. Oh, okay. so, it, it was, so I we had to train physicians, nurses, and micro, microbiologists, pharmacists, that if a patient is in the hospital, and the reason one of the reasons of the the primary reason they're in the hospital is they, they get the IV. Um, antibiotic is that they no longer had to be hospitalized. They, they can actually take the last two to three doses based on this new pharmaceutical product that we had. And it was a new technology, really, and, and it was one. It was one of the best ones. It grew to the number one. I helped. I was on a team of people that we helped it grow to the number one hospital antibiotic in the country. There are a lot of young people out there today who will be graduating from college soon or who just started their corporate career. And I don't know about your experience, but I found a lot of the young people, which you can look at their uh, transcript of things. These are just, just wizard, but they were kind of intimidated and unsure walking through the corporate do doors. What would you say to young people out there right now graduating getting ready to go into the corporate world, what would yeah. you say to them? And, 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 and let's be more specific, because uh, I dealt with a lot of young black engineers, to young HBCU graduates, let's say, that's coming out and they aren't sure of themselves, uh, they've heard about discrimination and things like that. What would you say to encourage them and give them some advice yeah. on how to maximize their careers? I'll tell them something they're probably never going to hear from any place else right now. And, mm -hmm. and, I've, and I, I've mentored, I've mentored a lot of people in, in corporate America, especially got people of color is that even though these guys may look different from you, they're on your same team. And, and, and because I served in uniform in the military, we did it all the time. Um, most people don't have that experience. And if you, if you, if you play, if you play competitive sports, you may have understand the concept. Problem is, is that we don't wear uniforms when we go to work. And oftentimes, you know, I plan on writing a book about the, for this as well uh, in the future for um, there's a rule book of business. And it's often this rule book, unlike, you know, the NFL, you know, this rule book is not published. It, it is. You got to learn it as you go. And these are social. These are social norms that a lot of people get growing up, especially in, in affluent homes and everything else. But if you're coming from a single family home and you're this year the first time in corporate America, you're, you're right. You're a little intimidated, even if you got the degree. But you often you have to often you've often have to you know let go of the things you hear about what to expect and all that. So number one is that you have you have more advocates for you in that company than you realize. Oftentimes, you you know what you may see as something that's racist or it was inconsiderate or whatever is it, it is something that. It may be just someone was inconsiderate. It may be something, they think, but it's also there are social norms that we don't understand um, that are happening in business that because there are unwritten rules of business, not because, you know, the, the marginalize you is because we haven't taken time to learn them. Right. And so one of the biggest issues that I think, especially for young people today, Lacey, is that they got to feel like, well, I, I'm joining your company. So, you know, there's things you got to accommodate me because I'm Gen Y, Z or whatever they are now. Right. He's going, here, number one is 
Just like if you're joining the Minnesota Vikings, you're coming on their team, you're playing by their rule book, you're putting on their uniform. You need to learn to adapt to their culture. They don't need to learn to adapt to yours. Yeah, yeah. Start there first. A little humility goes a long way. Find out what's the, the what's the culture and norm of the, of the company. You adapt. They have no reason to adapt. They're paying your salary. Right, <laughs> well, right, I can go to someplace right. else. Well, go. Yeah, go yeah. someplace else. But because when, whenever you go to someplace else, you're going to the expectation is that you're going to learn that. Now, most companies are very welcoming. Um, it's, it's you got to learn what the culture is and adapt to their culture, not the other way around. Yeah, and you may have experienced this. I'm quite sure you did. Also, being in the technical field, what I would tell them, young en engineers, make sure you know what you're doing in your job and you perform, uh, and, and have confidence and faith in yourself. And you and I both know the corporate world could be kind of tough and challenging. And you know, it's supposed it's to be. That, yeah, that, that, it, it, it is. Yeah. Uh -huh. Here's the one thing that I, I want to encourage people about. You know, capitalism, big companies, everything else. It is no different than the sports analogy what I just gave about the NFL. Other than having 580 people that can play in the NFL, there's a multi multiple millions of people that can play in the world of capitalism in this country. The only the thing is you gotta learn the rule of the game. You gotta yeah. learn the rules. And, and the expectation is, is that um, you're making the company better, faster, smarter, saving money or making money. Yeah, and I, I would explain to them, I always focus on getting things done, they make sure they work. Uh, you make budget and you meet schedule. And that's what I've, I told them to focus on. And, and as a result of that, I think we had a lot of great people come out of there. And the, I really one, one thing I would add to that, too. And you know what? Mm -hmm. Make some friends. You can yes. make friends that don't even don't, don't look like you. You know, yeah. the, the, the worst thing you can do is, is the, you know, is just marginalize yourself. Yeah. And, and, and that's a good point, too, Kendall, because what I found if you're open to people, they come to you and help right. you. I mean, I had so many great mentors. In fact, just a quick offside, and I always interject my own little personal stories here. I, I bugged them about being a software engineer for two, two a year or two. And finally, one of my mentors came to me and said, you want to be a software engineer? Here you go. Here's the listing. Great, great story. First day on the job, had a problem, and I didn't have a clue what it was. But I had this, and I'm going to call his name because I don't even know what Dave, Dave Satinan, electrical engineer. He just came to me and just took me on the, his wing. And I just remember he saying, oh, yeah, that's just the interrupt trap. I didn't have a clue of what an interrupt trap was at that time because I had taken high-level languages. But the point that you're making is that if you open yourself up to people, you, well, I'll put it this way, God will send angels your way to help right. you. So, right. Uh, okay. So now any other piece of advice you would give to people who just looking to get into business in general, uh, uh, what they can expect, uh, maybe even, even if they want to be entrepreneurs, what are the, are the key things uh, that people in the audience should know that goes yeah, into I, doing yeah, that? Yeah. I, I, I would encourage people to um, un understand the business side of it. It's, it's you know what, Com there is nothing wrong with companies want to make money, right? At, at the end of the day, it's funny. I, I talk about, you know, all these like these people like to work in nonprofits. Well, I work for a nonprofit. Well, we think the nonprofits get their money from companies that actually make money from, from profitable companies. The companies that I worked with had one of the largest endowment philanthropic budgets, you know, in the world because they were able to make money. So there's nothing wrong with that because if they're making money, that means they're providing a good or a service. 
that's benefiting someone. And if it's benefiting someone, they're getting joy and service because no one lets go of their money unless they, they really want something for it. So th there's a proper exchange for it. So understand that dynamic. And then the lastly is really understand the P&L, so the profit and loss statement of a company. You know, basically, you know, what's the top end? The top end is how much they sell. Everything in between is overhead. And then lastly, is then, you know, the, the profit that they're making as a company. If they understand that piece of it, what they want to do later in, in, in their own from, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, they got the basics of business. Well, you pointed out another interesting fact that basically all the most of the money comes from people who are out there working and generating business and profit and losses. What would you say to our leaders? And I'll get, get, get even more specific, specific uh, our political leaders who somehow seem to not appreciate here in the state of Minnesota, not appreciate the fact that most of the money comes from businesses and all the businesses that you're seeing closed down and putting through hardship right now, what would you say to our leaders uh, about what would you recommend, I guess, as a corrective course to get our businesses and, and help recoup some of the damages uh, that have been yeah. done? You know? Yes. So, so Lacey, I, I've got a, a great perspective of having uh, moved and lived in a lot of, in a large part of our country, our country from the corporate moves that I've moved, I've, I've had, and the corporate company that I worked with. And I saw what happened, and especially in the East Coast, where higher and higher taxes not only forced a lot of people to move, a lot of companies to move. It's hard to replace when a company um, relocates uh, or, you know, for whatever reason, they, 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 they shut down and um, to, try, to try to get that revenue, you know, filled, you know, that gap filled by something else. The other thing I, I remember is when I got out of the military, spec back, basically back in 1990 time frame, I remember the quote, it was 10% of the workforce in the United States worked for a Fortune 100 company or Fortune 500 companies, 10%. That 90% was small and medium-sized business. Today, it's 50% is now small, small, medium-sized businesses. Yeah. And that more and more of us working for larger, larger companies. The idea that we still need to make sure that that 50% of the small and medium-sized business, we got to protect that. We got to nurture it um, because those are the one; those are the guys that are most vulnerable, uh, especially in a, in a situation like a pandemic. Um, the fact that those are coming back could be hard, and they're the easier, the easiest ones to move. We, unfortunately, uh, you know, South Dakota has been recruiting a lot of these small businesses to do business over there, and we got to you got to got to remember that we, we live in a competitive environment businesses can move um, anywhere they want. And yeah. that's something we need to be cognizant of. Yeah, I think I heard a statistic uh, last year that the average income of people moving out of Minnesota is over $200,000. The average income of people moving into Minnesota is about $37,000. Mm -hmm. And I hope our policymakers are paying attention to that. And then just not only that, I I, I, I drive downtown Minneapolis through downtown. It looks like a ghost town. It looks like a ghost town. And it's just sad to see uh, us coming to this. Okay, let's let's transition into something that I know is uh, you're currently working on. 
and near and dear to your heart. Uh, tell us about Take Charge, your current Yeah, I'm really excited about it. It, it, it's a, it's a great, it's, it, the, re the receptivity of Take Charge has been great. I've been interviewed on national news media twice. I've been um, on you know several national radio stations. And but the premise behind this is very simple. Um, we're fighting a two battlefront uh, fight. One is fighting back against critical race theory. It's a false and divisive platform, not rooted in what's good about our country. If anything, they want to just disrupt all of that. Um, and it's not consistent. I, and I, I don't care who who's listening, who's here. It, it is absolutely true. It is it's the antithesis of who we are as a country. The second part of what I'm doing, I'm working in the, in the black community to help restore the black community to its roots of faith, family, and education. Um, that's who we were before we got help from the government. So in the 1960s, when, we, when um, the, the social welfare program started rolling out, it was the beginning of uh, the, the, the detriment of where we are today. Again, in my lifetime, we've gone from 80% two-parent families to 80% fatherless homes in less than a lifetime. And what we're doing, we we are, um, so not only that it was that, that, that drop, 80%, without one national initiative to return it back to its norm, without one national initiative to reverse it until now. We're doing it. We're going to, it's a national initiative to restore the two-parent black family. And we're going to do it out of the ashes and the riots and everything else of Minneapolis. It's going to be a great thing and we're going to export it across the country. Okay, way to go, Captain. Uh, so uh, you mentioned several times the term critical race theory. Why don't you take some time and you know explain to our audience briefly what is critical race theory? So, you know, a lot of these, um, if, if you're in any major corporation, if you're in academia, uh, school, or you're, you're a teacher or anything, everybody's been trained in it. And um, it, is a, it, is a, it is a political driven movement. It's not a black led movement. It's a political led movement and it's rooted in leftist ideology. Um, it's not my definition, it's theirs. Yeah. If you even look it up in some of the Oxford Dictionary, it is, it's a way to redistribute wealth and we distribute um, tangible assets based on an understanding that one, one group, an oppressive group, is the reason why we have the disparities that we see, and especially in the black community. Well, number one, that's a false narrative. The disparities are not because of racism. The disparities are because you, I mean, that really the same institutions that, are un, that, that introduce us to critical race theory are the same institutions that that introduced aid to family with dependent children or welfare as we know it. Mm -hmm. This program for, for unwed moms, as long as they stay unmarried, um, that was a catalyst for, for the disparities that we have. So that's what it is. And it's rooted in taking these disparities, take, taking wealth and redistributing it on the basis of, of, of uh, good intentions when it's absolutely wrong. And it, and it is a statist, statist run philosophy. Right. And that that is basically what what the scenario is. 
Yeah, and I, I made a statement last uh, couple of shows ago. We were talking about social justice and redistributing wealth, and uh, I was just being sincere, and I'm going to be 100% now. I'm not interested in you redistributing your wealth to me. I want to create my own wealth. And if anybody's doing this distribution, I want to be doing the distribution. And so it's a whole mindset uh, change that we're talking about here, are we not? And it's the way to control control Americans. And also, it's a way to give power to those that um, don't have power but want to have power over American citizens. Right. It's not rooted in truth. Right. right. Here's the issue. It doesn't matter. Any of these issues that they, their recommendations that they're, they're, they're putting forward will do nothing to help the black community. Not one thing. That wealth and everything else will go to those black Americans that already have wealth, that are already in position. And he, he, here's the other thing I'll say, say about this last, last thing, because if you've been in business, especially if you've worked in healthcare or any sciences, if you have a theory like critical race theory, you're basing your plans on moving forward on a national scale or doing something on a larger scale based on a feasibility study or a pilot program that's informing your decisions on why you're going forward nationally and on a larger scale. There is no feasibility study. There is no pilot program that they're saying the reason why we're doing this is because we've got these results from a smaller study. They have nothing, absolutely nothing. They're trying to rule this and run this down just because of the academic pedigree they have. And we're all little minions and we should follow suit. That's not who we are as a country. Well, and I was telling someone this the other day, Kendall, the sad part about that is it's not recognizing the human capital that we have in these communities that we can invest in. And they're not recognizing that just like they did it, the people you're trying to hand stuff out to can do it also. And so I have a serious uh, issue with all this redistribution and all these philanthropists that want to help us and just want to give us stuff. I don't want anyone to give me anything. This is personally. I want to get out and get it for myself. And that's where the empowerment comes in, I think. And that's what I'm looking for. So I'm glad, glad you're doing that work. Uh, tell us about some of the strategies and tactics that you are employing to bring about the results via this national movement. Yes. Well, it, it's really neat. Um, I, I'm very fortunate. It's, it's humbling and it's very humbling. I'm very honored. So the people that I'm recruiting to spread the message of return to faith, family, and education, I'm recruiting moms and grandmoms. I always say moms change the world. Um, in the black community. And I wasn't expecting to get the, my first cohort of married black men until at least six to seven months down the road. I have my first cohort of black men. So by the end of the year, I, I come to recruit uh, roughly about 100 people in the Twin Cities from the black community to educate young people, their peers, and basically is we didn't used to live like this. Okay. Uh, perpetual poverty, perpetual Motherhood, that wasn't the norm. God did not intend for women to raise children alone. Right, right. And we have so we have generations now of young people that this is all they know. So we, we, we're reintroducing the idea of marriage. We're showing them that there are young couples of, you know, black American, young black couples that have got married first, then had kids. We're showing them what good looks like and that they can achieve that in their own lifetime. 
And it starts with understanding that you want to wait till you have children before and, until you're married. And then there's opportunities for you, um, you know, than, more than what you see in your own neighborhood. Now, it's going to take, uh, again, the boots on the ground. And we're, we're developing a multimedia platform of videos to help, you know, um, share the message. So I call it boots on the ground. And our media platform is the air support. Okay, great. And I want to help you with what, what you're doing. I want to meet and talk a little bit more about the sure. specifics of it. Uh, this is what I've found, Kendall. Even those with the best intentions, unless you understand the people themselves very well, you know, it probably won't work. And I'm going to keep it on a high level on this particular topic. But there's some cultural issues that's been ingrained for decades. Yep. Those are some very, very tough issues to overcome. Uh, if you're talking about rebuilding the family and two-parent homes, you got to include the black men in there. Uh, there's a lot of, and I'm just, I'm just being honest here, a lot of them on paper that got criminal records. They've had run-ins with the justice system. Uh, their education might not be that well. And look, once again, keeping it real, uh, they've gotten into a lifestyle where they're just having fun. And how do you change that type of attitude and make them understand uh, the value of a rewarding life versus a fun life? How, how, how do we do that, uh, Kendall? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I, you know, this... Um, I, I call that this is um, this is simple, but not easy. So here, here's a simple mark. Again, I'm recruiting people from the community. They have credibility because they're from the community and they they come. Some some have background, just like you mentioned. So I have women that are involved that used to be on public assistance, used to be on welfare, had kids out of wedlock. And they're telling the message from their perspective and helping to avoid for young girls to go in that that path. I've had guys that are helping us that used to sell drugs on a street corner. Again, a lot of these people have found the faith in Christ and turned their life around. So our message is a God delivered message. So if you, if you are a Christian and you, you know this verse and we know the scriptures look with men, it's impossible with, but with God, all things are possible. But here's the, here's the scenario, Lacey. We're not going to get everybody. Mm -hmm. We need a contingent of, of people to come on board. So I just, this is analogous to, you know, when, when we were all in middle school and, and they put on a slow song to dance at, a, at, the, at the dance party, you know, you had a couple that would go out there and, you know, for, for a long time, the, the floor would be empty. Nobody wanted to go out there, especially when you, this is when you're small and you're, you're middle school or something, right? You get that first couple that goes and then you get two or three other couple, then all before you know, the, you know, the dance floor is full. We're, we're, we're the ones getting the first couples on the dance floor. I'm not trying to get all everybody on the dance floor at one time. Okay, with this, we're, we're creating the tipping point. I love what you're doing there. Uh, so is there any parting shots that you want to give our audience? Any questions that you wanted me to ask, but I did not? Uh, anything you want to say to our audience sure, before sure. we leave so, here, Kendall? So here, you know what? 
one of the things that we're doing, guys, is that um, one, and one of the reasons why I got involved in this in the public space is that we have a lot of great things about our country, just a lot of great things. But we often we don't communicate them well. So go to my website, takechargemn.com. That's takechargemikenovember for Minnesota.com. And you'll see, go to our video, go to the top right, you'll see the little play buttons. We're, we're, we're developing a multimedia platform. It's analogous to the, the Dennis Prager University, you know, Prager U. We're doing the exact same thing. It works. Short little snippets of how we're telling our story. Marriage. There's a new narrative going on in the black community. It's getting back to faith, family, and education. And here's the thing. We can't be shy about mentioning faith. Um, our country was rooted on this. It is in God we trust. Not in Fauci, we trust. So, you know, I want to encourage people that um, what's going to get us back is that when we do acknowledge, and I'm not telling anyone to be religious zealots, mm -hmm. but acknowledging that uh, this country only works when we and the self-governing people are virtuous people. That's what the founding fathers all had written in their documents about how America is going to work. And we need to get back to the basics. Lacey, thank you. Thank you, Kendall. Uh, we're going to wrap it up because we started out talking about family and the fact that you just celebrated your 35th wedding anniversary. I just celebrated my 34th on Valentine's Day. and So you got about a year on me here and you've been knowing Sheila since high school. So you've probably been together more than 40 years like me and my wife has. But let's just end it on this. Uh, I don't know about you, Kendall, but family is so important. And just having uh, a beautiful, committed, faithful wife is just the key to the whole thing. And uh, I hope you don't mind me sharing this with your audience. I called you yesterday and your wife answered the phone and she told me how she was taking care of your cell phone and everything like that. <laughs> I told my wife that story. And the first thing she said to me is that that sounds like you, Lacey. <laughs> and me. Uh, but let's end it by... Uh, first of all, I want to wish you a happy Father's Day and just talking about how blessed we are to have the family that we have, uh, the children, and most importantly, probably the wives that we have. That's the glue to keep it all together. So I'm going to let you end with a few brownie points here, Kendall, and tell us how important uh, your wife has been uh, as a mother uh, to your family and to the whole family structure? Uh, she, uh, you know what Lacey said, I, I mentioned she, she's an absolute blessing to me personally and to our children, to our family. It was a legacy actually for us and our family. She actually wrote an op-ed in the Star Tribune. If you guys want to go back on Mother's Day, May May 8th and 9th, that that Sunday, on, on, the, digital, on the digital platform is May 8th. But um, she wrote an op-ed in, in the Star Tribune. They published it. And she talked about her mother and what she learned about having a mean mom and, you know, she, and, and then how much she incorporated. So I want to give her all the kudos for that. But uh, I tell you, I, I tell my sons, you know what, regardless of your age, don't, don't feel like you've got to wait until you're 30 to get married. When you find the right woman, she'll make you a better man. Find the right woman. She'll make you a better man. Go ahead and marry her as soon as you find her. Only problem is she doesn't have an R on her forehead. So you, know, you, have, to, you have to examine the heart. Yeah, do a little due diligence. But that's a, that's a good way to end this because 
it dawned on me one day that I could never be the best man I could be without a good wife. And I want all the men out there to hear that and know that. And as you and your organization go around talking and recruiting and trying to help rebuild families, trying to improve education and trying to point out the uh, benefits and greatness of faith. Uh, those are the type of things I want our audience and especially men in our audience to keep in mind. So Kendall, this has been a blessing. Uh, look forward to seeing you again. Uh, say hi to Sheila and your family for me and me, uh, Betty, you and Sheila, we're going to get together for that dinner uh, sometime here shortly. So looking Absolutely. forward take, to it. Take care. And yeah, thanks for having me again, Lacey. Take yeah. care. Bye. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye.